Some of the greatest heroes have confessed that just before they fell, they had a sinking. Had it been so with Peter at that moment, I would admit it. After all, this was the only man that the sea cook had feared. But Peter had no sinking. He had one feeling only, gladness, and he gnashed his pretty teeth with joy. Quick as thought, he snatched a knife from Hook's belt and was about to drive it home when he saw that he was higher up the rock than his foe. It would not have been fighting fair. He gave the pirate a hand to help him up. It was then that Hook bit him. Not the pain of this, but its unfairness was what dazed Peter. It made him quite helpless. He could only stare, horrified. Every child is affected thus the first time he is treated unfairly. All he thinks he has a right to when he comes to you to be yours is fairness. After you have been unfair to him, he will love you again, but he will never afterward be quite the same boy. No one ever gets over the first unfairness. No one except Peter. He often met it, but he always forgot it. I suppose that was the real difference between him and all the rest. Those are the words of J.M. Barry in Peter and Wendy, and this is The Red Pen. Hello and welcome back, Amanda. Nope, both of us. Um, to the Red Pen, where we cut a fiction to see what it's made of. Thanks for the warm welcome, Austin. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. I'm glad that you're here with really me. Really. Unexpectedly and unusually. Threw a wrench into the intro proceedings, and I appreciate that. I just keep, I, I like to keep things fresh here on the Red Pen, where we cut a fiction to see <laughs> what it's made of. There. If that first one was too bad, you can use that one instead. No. Because it was really good. No, I'm, I must save you, just speaking to me and not our listeners, um, for the rest of time. Then everyone knows that the only person who matters on this podcast is me, apparently. I don't know. <laughs> well, hi. Uh, we're back. Uh, in the real world, it's been a long time since we recorded, and Snowpocalypse update, it's over. It's Spring so killed it. fucking over. Spring took a knife to the Snowpocalypse, and I couldn't be happier. The sun is shining. It was, it was 80 degrees. Yeah. For a little while today, uh, I sat on my porch in shorts and listened to the birds sing. Uh, the seasonal depression has been real this year, and I, for one, am overjoyed to see daylight. I'm glad that you you tore yourself away from frolicking through wet fields, just running around and enjoying the sunlight to record this episode of The Red Pen with me. It was a, it's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. Us. We got to do it. It's us. So what? In case what you were... Fuck. Hey, <laughs> shut your mouth. <laughs> this is my episode. Do it. I'm I'm steering. And I want to steer us into some banter. Amanda, what are you reading lately? Oh boy, I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it has been a long time since we recorded. <laughs> really throwing some curveballs at you. What am I reading? Um, right now I'm reading I'm rereading some Raymond Chandler novels because I'm gonna do uh, him for the, my next episode. So that's, oh, and I just bought, I'm reading Anne Leckie's The Raven Tower. I think that's what it's called. And um, I complained about this on Twitter. Um, I was going to say, that's what you called it on Twitter when you fucking dragged it. I didn't mean to drag it that hard. I meant to just sort of tug it gently. Listen, I like Anne Leckie's books. I'm still not done with the ancillary 
whatever that one's called the trilogy of ancillaries <laughs> not done with ancillary justice or whatever it's called and that whole trilogy i like her books whatever the fuck they are <laughs> but my biggest problem is that there's a lot of overwriting and the raven tower well not um sci-fi it's strictly fantasy is a uh, very overwritten and 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 the bigger stickler that i have is that it's in second person <sighs> So, while I am all for it and think that there's interesting things in it... Oh, and there's also a... I think the main protagonist is a trans dude. So, like, cool. Mainstream fantasy trans protagonist. I'm all for it. And, like, he's a talented author. I'm really going to be behind this book. But it is like going to the dentist. Like, for me, personally. (laughs) It is like, I know it's going to be worth it. And halfway through, I'll lose my irritation and anxiety about this fucking second person bullshit. I even bought the audiobook. So I was like, maybe it'll make it better if someone reads it to me. But I found the audiobook narrator to be unpalatable. Unpalatable. Unpalpable. Couldn't feel them. <laughs> Couldn't feel them. Here I am in limbo with Anne Leckie. So what have you been reading? Like, I don't know the answer to that. I'm enjoying this segment way more this year than I did last year when I wasn't reading for the first like five <laughs> months of the year because I've been reading consistently, which uh, has been great. As Amanda knows, I'm reading the Farseer trilogy by Robin Hobb uh, and enjoying the fuck out of it. I haven't read like fantasy this dense and tropey since A Song of Ice and Fire, which I don't know if I've ever talked about on this program that I actually really like A Song of Ice and Fire, the books, books, not the show. I appreciate some things about the show, but on the whole, uh, I'm a a books person. You know what I appreciate about the show? The fact that it enabled Astolot to write a lot of Jamie and Brienne fan fiction. There we are! Woo! I'm so glad you managed to sneak that into this episode. We recently read a lot of Jamie and Brienne fanfiction and enjoyed the hell out of it. Yep. That's a good ship. Uh, anyway, I am loving it and I haven't had the experience of reading like a 450 page book and being like, ooh, the next one's 600 pages. (laughs) And I bet even less will happen in it uh, in a long time. (laughs) Ooh. Dragon Robin Hobb, which I fully support. But it's like, it's, I'm so impressed and so I enjoy it so much that like literally the first book is the main character from ages six to 15, just in exhaustive detail. And yet it's so compelling and I enjoy it so much. If you are into that kind of fantasy, yeah. Do it. Get thee to this book. So Austin, I feel like we should give, I don't know if it's like a caveat or I don't know if this is like a reader beware, but explain the circumstances under which you bought the first book. Okay, yes. So we recently went out for karaoke with uh, eternal friend of the show, Tracy Timmons Gray. After several drinks and two full hours of karaoke split between only three people in a room. Honestly, I could have been longer. Uh, we could have. We were very powerful people, um, <laughs> and we did a very good job. I sang Phantom of the Opera at more or less the tail end of that and sounded great, at least to myself, after three drinks. So <laughs> then we staggered into a wonderful local bookstore, Elliott Bay, and proceeded to each spend somewhere north of $100 dollars. Uh, mostly on books we already own. Yes, we each bought a full hardback set of the Murderbot Diaries, and then I also bought A Descent of Monsters by J.Y. Yang, which I already owned an ebook and have already read, and Assassin's Apprentice, the first book in the Farseer uh, trilogy by Robin Hobb. 
mostly because I was standing at the Robin Hobb section in fantasy making noises about how I loved and hated it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you ripped it off the shelf and put it in my hands. And I, having had three drinks, immediately said, I'll buy it. No, that's not what happened. Your uh-huh. drunken haze has lied to you. I was making noises about them and how they had tormented my soul for years. And you went, which one would I start with if I were to start? And I went, oh, uh, and I guess this one, because it is literally the first book in that verse. And then you were like, okay, and then bought it. I guess we'll never know what the truth is. <laughs> Tracy Timmons Gray, time to tweet at the show. <laughs> Tracy, don't you dare. <laughs> don't expose him for this. So I really actually quite enjoy the. I endorse the Robin Hobb books with massive caveats, especially because I feel like that series should have ended before it technically did. And uh, she wrote a, a follow-up trilogy that she should have just never touched. This is my opinion. One day, we're, when when Austin is done with the six books I have allotted him from this verse, oh, we're going to do an episode about it. <laughs> I'm very excited. I'm very excited too, honestly. I did want to mention one other thing that I just read last night because I'm super hyped. Uh, this past weekend was Emerald City Comic Con and as usual, I was there throwing my money at comics Uh, And one that I picked up that has been out for a while, and I do not know why I haven't bought it before this, uh, Yes, Roya. Yes. Yes, Roya is by uh, C. Spike Trotman and Emily Denich, uh, and it is phenomenal, smutty. It's phenomenal. I I enjoyed it so much. (laughs) It is smutty graphic novel set in the 1960s about uh, comic artists and features a kinky threesome and it's all about femdom and it it's just pure and wonderful and delightful so hey austin you maybe want to tell people what this episode is about because i just realized we never did that Woo! oh no i i cut you off at the pass there and took a hard right into things that really have nothing to do with the topic of this episode at all we're here to talk about peter pan in a shocking <laughs> twist that no one expected from me so if you are not aware for some weird reason everyone knows Amanda. i mean there's got to be somebody who finds this on itunes and is like i'll listen to it and then stops five minutes in when i am ranting about second person austin wrote a um queered peter pan i don't want to say a retelling uh sequel <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> more or less um peter pan take called peter darling that i acquired and edited was one of the editors on. There's no good way to explain what I did to that book. (laughs) (laughs) So it made you take out the talking sharks. I don't plan to talk a ton about Peter Darling in this episode because um, I'll be embarrassed. I don't particularly want this to be like a... A you thing? A a me thing, yeah. Because I love Peter Pan and I mean, I wrote a book about it. And I have a lot of feelings on many different adaptations of Peter Pan. And the one that I particularly want to frame this about is the original novel which is, in fact, not the original version of the story, but it is um, the the version that a lot of Peter Pan <laughs> mythos comes from. I want to to talk about the ways that, that the legacy of that book um, has endured and also the things that I think have not resonated as much or gotten lost um, as years have gone on, as well as the 90 million adaptations and spins and twists on, twists on Peter Pan. I, I can't think of many other stories that were written after 1900 that on, on a whim, like I sat down and just started listing out 
all of the different versions of Peter Pan that I could think of off the top of my head. And it was a long list. This character is all over the place. In many cases, thanks to Disney, the ideas of the story are also all over the place. It, it's a very embedded, you know, you, you have things like Peter Pan syndrome used to describe primarily men who are in some ways adolescent as adults. You have Peter Pan peanut butter. <laughs> you have the enduring <laughs> popularity of the Disney film. You have the entire like Tinkerbell franchise, still the stage, uh, stage and, and, and musical adaptations and new ones all the time. You have Peter Pan popping up in Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> you have Once Upon a Time. Oh, man. You have Peter Pan 2003, the best version. And then you have many, many novelizations. There, it's, it's humbling as a person who has written a book about Peter Pan to go on Goodreads and look at how many, like I found a, a Goodreads list once of just how many adaptations of Peter Pan there are. It was at least a hundred. That was on that list. Yeah, there's a and lot. I, there are probably more. I was talking about this to you in the pre-prep, but I don't know why I keep calling it the pre-prep. I guess technically it was because it was over Facebook. That's true. We prepped in many places and many times. <laughs> Uh, I was talking to you about how it, I think, resembles a modern myth more than almost any other sort of franchise or series I can think of. I guess Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I would say Lord of the Rings is more of a modern myth. But still, like, Peter Pan is such a baked-in part of Western culture that I knew, I thought I knew everything about it, and I had not read the book until I was, yeah. like, 25. and so many, so many ideas come from it that are now very divorced from the, the original, like, the concept of Neverland. A lot of popular depictions of fairies come from this book. A lot of popular depictions of pirates come from this book. It's all over the place, as well as many sort of quotes and concepts and ideas about childhood and the loss of childhood and the tragedy or cruelty of childhood, so on and so forth. It's all over the place. So I wanted to talk about that and what I find interesting about the original story, as well as why I think this story is particularly resonant with uh, queer readers. Again, not to <laughs> not to call not to myself call out, but out. after I published Peter Darling, and even when I was working on it, like so many people reached out to me to say like, oh, you know, I'm trans and Peter Pan was the character I identified with as a kid. You know, I'm queer and this story has always stuck with me in a particular way. And clearly it stuck with me as well. So I think there's, there's interesting stuff to examine there. I can't believe that this great lead up to the meat of our episode you failed to mention my favorite adaptation of <gasps> Peter Pan I forgot Hook <laughs> you forgot Hook the most important to me I found out uh, while I was researching today that Hook is an authorized adaptation of Peter Pan Oh, wow. There's a lot of authorized adaptations of Peter Pan. One of the interesting things that I don't really have any other place to put this factoid about Peter Pan is that the, the copyright was not left to... The, a, a lot of the properties were left to J.M. Barry's secretary when he died, but some of the... the I, I believe it's the stage play and maybe a couple of the other rights were left to a children's hospital in the UK and continues to like make huge amounts of money for them. It's continuing legacy directly sort of benefits a children's hospital which is pretty cool that's also a kind of kind of a plot point in the movie hook hey <laughs> is my oh boy is my uh help with this episode just gonna be a lot of mm -hmm, you forgot about hook. the movie hook <laughs> <laughs> maybe so time will tell I, I didn't see Hook growing up. My first brush with Peter Pan, as I think is true for many people, was Disney. Followed when I was probably 10, I think 10, by the 2003 uh, live action adaptation 
uh, and many, many, many years later by the actual book Peter and Wendy by J.M. Barry, which I'm going to hop into now. J.M. Barry was a novelist and playwright who, born 1860, died 1937. His first introduction of Peter Pan as a character was actually in a, an adult novel that he wrote called The Little White Bird, um, and he was just in a couple chapters, and that was published in 1902. A couple years later, he wrote a uh, stage play, Peter Pan, or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up. After that had been very popular for a while, he also wrote a novel called called Peter and Wendy, which is in many ways what we think of as the Peter Pan canon, but in, in also many ways the, the stage play tends to be a little closer. A lot of what people associate with the book is also true or more true of the stage play. And part of that is because the book would not have been what it was if not for the stage play, which is something I find really neat about it. If you read this book now, you'll notice that it is one of those books that is really fun to read aloud, and it, the narrator talks to the reader throughout a lot of it in a, in a very like apparent reading to a child or or a mentor to a child, like these funny asides and criticisms of the characters. It's clearly a story that's meant to be read aloud and sort of performed, even if just one-on-one. -on -one. That grew out of the way that the stage play was. The stage play was modified during its run quite a bit based on what the audiences wanted, what would be more fun to the kids. So like Captain Hook wasn't in it originally, but it, it wanted a villain. So Captain Hook was invented. Uh, and all of these sort of, what do I want to call them? Things that you now associate with the stage play, when Tinkerbell dies and it goes like, clap your hands if you believe in fairies. That's kind of a weird moment in the book because it's like okay and then all the children put those and then down. all the children in the world clap their hands and it's it's sort of like a short <laughs> moment in the book peter's like clap your hands kids please my fair is dying and then it's like and then the kids clap and then the fairy came back to life obviously in the stage play that is the moment where he turns to the audience and says clap your hands if you believe in fairies and the whole audience erupts until tinkerbell erupts and cries until tinkerbell comes back to life so it has all these dramatic flourishes and this style that really came out of the stage which is something that is really cool and then the the flow of this story in the in the public consciousness goes from a uh, chapter in a novel to stage play to novel to stage play to musical to film to to stage play again to more film it flows throughout all these different mediums and i think the reason that it works in so many mediums is because it has that very performative aspect of it it's a story that is meant to be told not that is meant to be sort of quietly consumed. It's a very funny, very engaging story that is meant to kind of like pull an audience in and make them feel part of it. And, and it, it's very entertaining. It's, a, it's kind of an, a unique narrative form in that way. I still think like it still holds up barring some <laughs> troubling aspects, which don't worry, I won't skip. It holds up as like a very entertaining read. It's extremely funny and extremely weird, and it's, you know, you can get it for free, so if you're interested, don't hesitate to check it out. My caveat there, obviously, is it's fucking racist, um, and also, like, <laughs> deeply gender essentialist. If I could excise one thing from all the fucking adaptations of Peter Pan, it's like, you really don't need to put his caricatures of Native American people in your stories anymore. You could just not- It's weird you could just not- 
that that's still occasionally happening. Like, I would have thought that they would have taken it out in, I don't know, Pan? No, they yeah, didn't. Like the 2015 Pan, which just introduces, like, Rooney Mara as Tiger Lily. Why do we have to <laughs> fucking do this? Uh, it also introduced, which gave our, our friend of the show, Simone, a wheezing attack. <laughs> I actually don't know how she reacted, but uh, uh, definitely has a scene where the the pirates are at like i don't know pirate camp i don't know what the fuck the pirates are doing i'm not seeing that movie anyway they break into fucking nirvana smells like teen spirit as like a pirate chorus yeah and it, mm. it apparently like was ad-libbed and they kept it they did it while they were in pirate boot camp that's where i got pirate boot camp from <sighs> and like somebody just started singing it and then they all sang it and, uh, and they the started director, recording but to to continue to sort of dig into peter pan the novel one of the things i find really interesting is that it has become so enduring in the public consciousness even though it is objectively a fucking weird little book it's very short it's extremely strange there's a lot of aspects of it that aren't in the public consciousness because they're too fucking weird everything in it is very very imaginary like not just when they get to neverland but the the moment the book starts like you're in jm barry's storytelling world and things get weird <laughs> um, boarded the ride and the whole thing is like it is a story made up of stories made up of stories everything is anthropomorphized the world is alive like he he goes off into tangents about why are the stars why why are stars out there and why are they in the sky and then the next minute it'll be did do you know how sometimes like you wake up and your your thoughts are all better ordered and stuff that's because your mother's job at night is to go into your mind and air out your thoughts and put away the bad ones and take out the nice ones and lay them out for you to put on in the morning. And this is the style that the entire book is written in. It's just filled with these kind of fascinating tangents. And sometimes it'll just fucking go off. Like there's a part that haunts me, frankly, where it's talking about the fact that the, the Neverland in Peter Pan is not meant to be like the universal Neverland. It's not like a place. It's not like a real thing. The Neverland of Peter Pan is specifically comes from the imaginations of Peter uh, or of, of Wendy and, and John and Michael, the three children. There's an idea that it's a little different for each of them. And so it's going into like the ways each of them experience Neverland. And it's like John had lots of friends and Wendy had a wolf for a friend and Michael had friends only at night. And I'm just, what do you mean, James? Don't you all have night friends? What do you I mean? I have night friends. <laughs> what is that? Night friends. They visit me every night. Oh, friends. man. Another sidebar, like everyone in the book is named after a real person. I think a lot of people know this, that uh, J.M. Barry was friends with a family that had five boys. Uh, one of them, the youngest was Peter, or at least the youngest when he was writing the book. I think the others may have been younger. And the, the character of Peter Pan was originally conceived um, as a way of entertaining Peter's older brothers by saying like, oh, all babies are part bird and he might fly away out of his cradle. Again, Jam Barry, Which by part? all accounts, a weird dude, <laughs> um, but like very good at entertaining kids um, with his weird shit. Extremely imaginative. Yeah. You have to you have to give props for that. I mean, there's some wild ass shit in there and I, I approve. I approve of it. And, and Peter's brothers were named John and Michael. Uh, and one of them was George, which is Mr. Darling's name in canon. Jam Barry's wife's name was Mary, which is Mrs. Darling's name in canon. Character of Peter uh, was partially based on uh, Peter Llewellyn Davies, but was also 
um, in part based on J.M. Barry's older brother, David, I think, who died when he was 13. And so a lot of it is this sort of, I mean, I think that that's part of what comes through in the story. It, it's very much based on his making the real world more fantastical and continually adding on more and more layers of, you know, weird explanations for why why things are the way they are, or just sort of whimsical twists on the way the world really is. Uh, and I think that's why, for all that, that Peter Pan is this sort of very whimsical story, it, it does feel like it's always riffing on things that are real, uh, and, it, and it feels very grounded in things that are real. Namely, the concept of childhood. <laughs> Yeah, Jan Berry made up a lot of shit, but he did not make up childhood and how strange it is. A lot of what I find fun about the structure of Peter and Wendy is that it really mimics the way that kids tell stories. Uh, it has that same kind of meandering strangeness uh, and, and the ability to sort of jump topics and, and concepts at will. It's also full of commentary on youth and childhood and childishness because Peter Pan, as we probably all know, is the, the kid who can never grow up and everybody else in the story is all the people who do cho choose to grow up. And so there's a lot in it about what it means to choose society and conventionality and quote unquote, like real life, basically, uh, to choose, you know, adult sexuality and romance and relationships and what it means to choose that over childhood and what it would mean if you rejected that completely um, and stayed a child forever. The quote I picked for the opening one is very much one of those like very vulnerable moments where, you know, he, he frames Peter as being able to get over the experiences that shape all of us into grown-up people who are in many ways, you know, jaded and have experienced harm or have experienced hardship. He has the ability to just put that aside over and over and over again. He doesn't fear pain. He doesn't fear death. He doesn't fear loss because he forgets everything in order to, to maintain that. That's part of why that character has remained so enduring, I think, is this fascination with the fantasy of that. But I feel like when you're a kid, Peter Pan is just this example of um, fantastic adventures that you can get up to if you had essentially superpowers and powers of Im imagination. You can fly, you can throw temper tantrums, you have a fairy for a best friend, you have all these boys that you're sort of in charge of. And then when you get older, you start to see the tragedy in Peter Pan and like the things that you want come at a cost. And that would be like forgetting everything that could change you. And also how surface level Peter's existence is. So on one hand, it's like, ah, oh, yes, you know, to be a child is so full of magic and wonder until you realize that to be a child forever robs you of a deeper experience. I just feel like that's one of the other reasons why Peter Pan has been so enduring as a character, because he matters to little kids and to old people like me. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, too, that the Disney version is probably the most enduring version of this story and the disney version is the one that kind of drains that away the most it's there but disney doesn't really encourage you to think like oh what a tragedy peter pan is he's kind no, he's of more of a brat he, yeah and he's kind of like he's the eternal child and the eternal fantasy in that form like it, it doesn't really encourage you to critique the notion of staying a child forever it's more like he's always there you know having a good time in neverland uh, and you can still sort of imagine yourself there too and you know every child gets to go away and be in neverland for a while 
I think that's why like so many adaptations of Peter Pan, I'll get into this more later, but like so many uh, edgy adaptations of Peter Pan try to be like, I'm going to flip that on its head and talk about how Peter Pan sucks. That's the like the literal least edgy take you could have on Peter Pan. That's the book. That's what the book is about. (laughs) Trust me, they already did that. (laughs) J.M. Barry thought about that, actually, because the the book is full of these moments that I I think would probably go over the head of most kids or at least, you know, get filed away in the like subconscious of of vulnerability and tragedy of that character and cruelty. He, He not only will never develop a thicker skin about pain because he only experiences it once for himself. He also forgets the names of his old companions and his old enemies. Canonically, Tinkerbell fucking dies after- I just have to underline this one really quick. Canonically, there's an epilogue that is what Return to Neverland is based on, the the Disney sequel to Peter Pan, where Peter comes and meets Wendy's daughter, and he is- devastated that Wendy has grown up without him and then tells her that he he doesn't remember who Captain Hook is. He and Tinkerbell, he doesn't remember either. And he's like, yeah, she probably fucking died. Fairies don't live that long. <laughs> you get this glimpse of someone who can only you know, maintain this sort of idealized childhood by giving up all of these things and and losing them. And in addition to that, he is also extremely callous and extremely cruel. He's at least implied in the original to kill or banish the lost boys if they ever grow up on him. When he's flying the kids to Neverland at the beginning, he keeps like almost letting them die and, and then rescuing them. And it specifically points out like he seemed more into, you know, proving how cool he was that he could rescue them than actually preserving human life. You know, he can't understand consequences. He can't understand passage of time. Like, he he is, he's missing out on a huge chunk of life. And then there's, of course, the implication, like, he can never have a family. He can never have a lover. Like, he, he can never become mature enough to have any of these things. He's the epitome of the the, the most limiting parts of childhood. The thing that always just cracks me up about like really edgy takes on Peter Pan is that they all tend to start from the premise of like, what if he was a bad man who like kidnapped children and didn't care about their lives? And it's like, no, that's um, that's what Peter Pan is. Cool. You just wrote like slightly edgier. I'm gonna throw a lot of shade in this episode because I think a lot of edgy adaptations of Peter Pan are supremely missing the point. It's the it's the classic thing where somebody is like, I'm gonna make this mature, therefore I'm gonna add, like, gore to it. And it's like, you haven't made the actual themes of this remotely more mature than they were. These are the exact same themes. All you've added is like, what if a kid was stabbed? And it's like, that's <laughs> nasty. Yeah, what you've described is upsetting. Thanks for making a nasty book. That's upsetting. But like, it's nothing that isn't already implied by the existence of this character. The The only thing that is preventing that from being on the table in Peter Pan the original is, you know, what is considered appropriate for the audience and the narrative framing. You dragging in more violence doesn't really change it. He already, like, cut off a dude's hand and threw it to a crocodile and then threw that guy to the crocodile. He is already a murderer. The content of the books and the themes of the books are already appropriately sophisticated. Just because you think this thing is primarily aimed at children, it is, doesn't mean that it doesn't have self-awareness. You're not telling, like, the ghost of J.M. Barry fucking anything. J.M. Barry knew what he was about. The The whole book is is filled with that. The ending, it implies a, a very tragic cycle for, for Peter, where... 
he continues to meet, you know, Wendy's child and then her grandchild and then her great grandchild and have to forget the relationships that he has with each one and start over, over and over again because he can never have a more mature relationship with them. That's fucked up. Yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> it's also a very funny book, though. It's extremely <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> um, I don't mean to imp imp uh, imply that it's super grim to read because it's not. It's hilarious. I wanted to to quickly also throw a dart, though, at, at why I think this story is resident or resident resonant for for queers like us. And I, I kind of I wrote a, a blog post specifically about why I think it's resonant for trans folks specifically, but I think it, it applies more broadly to to queer folks as well. Like, I think there's a lot to be said for the idea that being queer and being cut off from many types of adult society and from the institutions of that society is in a way being sort of confined to a childhood. You can look at it that way, at least. I think there's a lot to be said for this character representing, you know, freedom and kind of like a fuck you to adult cishet society and like, I'm going to go off to my Neverland and fly around. I, I also think that there's a lot to be found there in the feelings of abandonment and isolation, you know, on the outside of that institution. You know, Peter Pan is locked out of Wendy's home at the end, watching her get to grow up and have a family and a life of her own. Especially, I think, because I, I mentioned before, deeply gender essentialist. <laughs> I just want to highlight for a moment, like, just how much so. For one thing, this is something that folks who know the stage play would already know. P uh, Captain Hook and, and Mr. Darling are played by the same actor, traditionally speaking. And there's a, there's a lot of parallels between those two characters. So Wendy's father and also the villain of Neverland. And then John, her brother, is also implied to like act like Mr. Darling throughout. And then Wendy is like the splitting image of her mother. And her daughter is the splitting image of her. And her granddaughter is the splitting image of her. <laughs> um... <laughs> What I'm putting out here is that there are like two two people in this story. <laughs> it's um, true. There's man and there's woman, and then there's Peter, who is a child. Every woman in the story is, you know, in a in a you know very sexist way, assumed to basically act from the same principles, and so is every man. Um, every woman in the story is in love with Peter. Michael, who is also a child, also imitates Peter, and then grows up to be a real man. You know, everyone becomes a husband or a wife. Uh, everybody raises two to three children <laughs> um, who some of them go to neverland and go through the same cycle yeah but everyone yeah like that's what i find kind of interesting is like it, it basically implies this extremely rigid society that basically just loops on itself in almost the same way that peter is looping on them so i think especially given that the the fantasy of of peter pan is this character who is kind of outside of that this very very narrow imagining of uh what people are and what they want because obviously all they want is to grow up and be straight people in straight marriages with children <laughs> and that's the whole that's the whole of society apparently it's at least the idealized. With, with minor deviations, but like that's literally all you see on screen ever outside of Neverland. So I think Neverland sort of becomes a catch-all and Peter becomes a hero for this idea of like, what else? What are the other options? Like, what if I fall out of my pram and fly away and fight pirates for the rest of my what life? If I, what if I just see myself out of the simulation? Yeah, what if I never grow up this way? What is the other option? In canon, it's kind of like, well... 
there there isn't yeah it's not like (laughs) real (laughs) it's not like a good option that it presents but i especially given you know like the disney versions where it's not quite as grim i think that that becomes especially appealing if that resonates with you. The the strongest connection I have to the Peter Pan like lore is first the movie Hook starring Robin Williams and second your book because I was actually not a huge fan of the Disney version and I didn't like the 2003 version except for Jason Isaacs. <laughs> so <laughs> my relationship with that mythos like the Peter Pan mythos is so specific and it's really interesting although the t- two things that are important from the the disney peter pan the og animated one there's a ride at disney that's actually kind of fun i want to go and two i need to take you and two um there's the the gif of the crocodile slapping the <laughs> yes. water well god yeah that that one's real good i that's also that enduring the, legacy the literal entire time i was working on peter darling I had like stuck in my head the entire time. It is so catchy. It is a very good musical cue and it says so much about its character because it's Peter's theme basically. Mm-hmm. Because I interrupted you anyway. Carry on. Do you want to do you want to talk about <laughs> the movie Hook? <laughs> so or do you want to talk about I would love to talk about Hook. Not least because I Now we're going to get into less academic and more personal territory. I have very strong feelings about what is and is not an appropriate adaptation of Captain Hook. (laughs) And Hook is one of them. Wait, inappropriate or appropriate? appropriate. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I have. um, Since then, I found out that Dustin Hoffman is actually kind of a shit heel. So like, this is one of those things. Yeah. Dang. This is one of those things where I'm like, okay, I love this as a child and it has to be important to me because of that. But every time I like see any part of Hook from Hook now... I'm just like, mm. however, it is notable because Dustin Hoffman and Bob Hoskins kind of looked at each other, according to one of them in some article, and went, they're like a queer couple, right? Like Hook and Shmee are Smee, Shmee, Shmee, <laughs> Shmee, <laughs> Shmee. Uh, Hook and Smee are a fucking queer couple, right? And that's how they played it. Um, and that, I mean, in retrospect, yes. The things about Hook that are so great to me are, one, it's just a charming movie and I saw it when I was a child. Apparently I demanded my mother take me to it like five times while it was in theaters. More importantly than that, it does the, like, even though it's like a family movie and it's not the best, it does a couple of things right. It pretty much took out all of the fucking bullshit racist Native American crap. Good thanks really don't feel like it's that hard to do other adaptations of peter pan it's not there uh which because it's not needed there's like a weird sexy part where (laughs) peter adult peter falls into the water in neverland and gets like breath put in his lungs by sexy glittery mermaids oh yeah good and weird and very important to me as a child hmm one of the things that i liked about it and like a lot of people apparently didn't like julia roberts's tinkerbell but i liked that tinkerbell spoke because there ain't a lot of female characters who if you don't have wendy as your main because wendy is now granny wendy and her daughter uh, moira is who peter like peter married moira came back 
checked on checked on Wendy as as Wendy grew up, and then finally, oh no, her granddaughter Moira. I'm sorry, uh, married her granddaughter Moira. Moira and Granny Wendy are are once Peter leaves for Neverland again, are stuck back in 1990s London. But Peter's having the adventure, and the only main female character you see a lot of is Tinkerbell, who speaks and is in love with Peter and uh, his daughter as well. His daughter's in it, but like she's less she's made less important by the narrative she's just there to like resist the pirates more than yeah peter's son jack does which there's a whole weird in with adult eyes the whole thing of like hook grooming peter's son to like dress like him and like was gonna give him an ear piercing with the fucking tip of his hook and then like (laughs) it's weird (laughs) and wild it's weird and then yeah so the the movie is um deeply enjoyable and nostalgic to me and i think that it was a good choice to like give us an idea of how peter pan as an adult could be but circa 1990s <laughs> i mean literal perfect casting for robin williams right yeah i love hook and it is a deeply important to me version so anything for me when i was navigating the world of like peter pan adaptations like anything that directly contradicted hook i was just like <laughs> mm. <laughs> like this is the canon now for me that was the the 2003 peter pan which came out like i said when i was 10 and and was definitely formative because Jason Isaacs is so hot as Captain Hook. He's so Hook. fucking hot in it. Oh my god. Listen, it's a good it's setting. And what I realized later when I finally actually read the book is it is probably uh, of the adaptations I have read, it is by far the most faithful to the book. It is much more faithful than the Disney version um even than Hook. And it it has those very it has those sort of emotional drops like the book does. And it's not as sad as the book is in parts, but um, it definitely captures that sense of of tragedy. They, they did, they wanted to make Jeremy Sumter as Peter Pan a little bit more of a teen heartthrob. So like, he gets to like canonically be in love with someone um, and not be quite so heartless. But <laughs> they also, I feel like they made him a little, like he's a little too old and a little too sexy. And I feel weird saying that about like a literal teenager, but he just seemed very... Well, they like they the kind styling of was, yeah, like um, they they do that. The the movie did that. They definitely like wanted to make him like teen heartthrob status, palpable to kids, to palpable to, like, the youth. <laughs> yep. Also, I I'm going to rewind and put this in my hook portion. But there's a the things that it did to me in order to make me invested in that storyline. Like it managed to terrify the shit out of me as a child because there's the scene where um, Peter and his wife and Granny Wendy had gone off to the hospital, which uh, apparently she was like a benefactor of was like renamed the granny wendy children's hospital or foundation or something well he's gone hook comes and kidnaps his kid and when he gets back the house is dark and windows have been shattered and there's deep gouge marks in the wall and the music is so fucking ominous and you go up the stairs and the housekeeper is there and they're asking her what happened and she's just like the children were screaming and i don't know how they managed to put that in a children's movie but they did and it was scary although the actual scene that you see of the kids being taken isn't quite to that level it's just and there's something so like i'm glad that a movie that on paper is just like, oh, yeah, it's a kid's movie about grown up Peter Pan, like having to go back to Neverland and re- relearn how to fly and how to be Peter Pan because he's forgotten all of it. I'm glad that they let parts of it be genuinely scary and genuinely touching. Like the stuff with his kids was actually pretty good. Also that they let it him try and hit Tinkerbell with a rolled up newspaper because he thought she was like a <laughs> firefly from hell. <laughs> 
Like, I'm glad that all of those things were present. I, I find Hook really, really interesting and really neat because it kind of epitomizes for me, like, people's, like, grown-up reactions to Peter Pan. Yeah. Because it is so much about, like, what if what happened to Peter Pan was what happens to all of us, you know? Like, what if Peter had to go through everything that we do, and what if we, like Peter, could go back to Neverland and, like, learn how to, like, laugh and be fly. young again and relate <laughs> to children? Fly. Yeah, because the point is literally he's like an absent, neglectful father, and then he risks losing his children and can't save them as the grown-up man that he is and has to relearn. And it's like, ooh, that's powerful if you're if you're a person who feels like you've lost touch with the things that made you, I don't know, emotional or special in childhood. I feel like I've lost a lot of that as I've gotten older. And the idea of a catharsis for that or a vehicle for that is really powerful. Yeah, because I've talked yeah. a lot about the negative things that Peter represents, but he's also like, he represents unbridled joy and courage and adventure and, and you know, who you would be if you didn't think about consequences. I think that, that that's why that character is so beloved. I think that character being so beloved is also directly why people are so into making like edgy versions of him where he's just like a murderer <laughs> with a knife. <laughs> it's like, okay, but what if actually... What um, if we tarnished Peter Pan's image? It's like, um... <laughs> What if he wore all black and skulked, skulked through the night? What if he wore a trench coat? Oh, shit. Oh, 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 before you move on, because I hear you taking the breath. I have one more uh -huh. Peter Pan reference that you don't know. Go, go, go. It's so silly. You ha you know almost nothing about the Jonas Brothers, where mm -hmm. unfortunately I know too much. And they had a song called Fly With Me mm. that has kind of a Peter Pan theme. And every time I listen to it, and it's been a while, it's been a hot minute. Every time I listen to it, I like cry at the irony. <laughs> because the lyric in the chorus is Peter Pan and Wendy turned out fine hmm. and i feel like upon uh by what metric yeah <laughs> did they did, did they, they did they turn out fine i i mean i get like wendy turned out fine yeah like wendy's fine by a metric of by fine a metric she joined like cishet society and like peter didn't okay. turn out anything is sort of the point peter's still Peter doing didn't shit change in, in any way shape or form it's like but the, the implication there is that like peter maybe Pan he and watched wendy, <laughs> this is Hook song fic. It reminds me again of the cultural impression of Peter Pan that maybe people have that like Peter Pan and Wendy flew off into the sunset together somehow, even though she very clearly went back to her life. Or that like maybe somewhere Peter Pan and Wendy are still zooming around Neverland. I don't understand why that is the takeaway for a lot of people, but I guess arguably it is. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a strong and again, I think sexist <laughs> implication certainly in the disney version and, and even the, the 2003 version that like peter goes off and remains this same person and wendy loves him forever yeah like, which is kind of i i i feel like wendy at a certain like let's say wendy at 45 is just like shit <laughs> like she and and i think there there is a strong implication in all versions that at the very least she remembers him forever mm -hmm. and yeah. she she cares for the memory of him but like she very explicitly rejects him and rejects the, his way of being um yeah she literally locks the door on him also um, this is i feel like a good place as any to throw this in here wendy is the main character um and i think that people sort of neglect that like the the, the framing of the story is literally all through like, like it's through wendy and it's through her experiences her 
you know, nature as a storyteller. She is the one of her siblings who tells the story of Peter Pan and who summons him. And he's the she's the one that he wants to, to bring to Neverland. She's the one who wakes up in Neverland and takes them out. And the, the book is even framing the, the first line. I'll just pull it up. The, the first line that many people know is all children except one grow up. The second line is... They soon know that they will grow up, and the way Wendy knew was this. One day, when she was two years old, she was playing in a garden, and she plucked another flower and ran with it to her mother. I suppose she must have looked rather delightful, for Mrs. Darling put her hand to heart and cried, Oh, why can't you remain like this forever? This was all that passed between them on the subject, but henceforth Wendy knew that she must grow up. You always know after you are two. Two is the beginning of the end. (laughs) Fucking mic drop. Later on, like, this is towards the very end of the book, pre-epilogue, but, like, after Wendy returns home, uh, it's said that, you know, don't feel sad for her that she chose to grow up. She wanted it so much that she grew up a day faster than all the other children. But again, like... She such a weird... explicitly rejects, it's also weird, but she explicitly rejects what Peter is and keeps him as sort of, she, she is able to sort of straddle the line and like keep him in her heart as a fond memory and maintain this sort of, you know, loveliness of youth and, and fondness for that. But they don't get together, y'all. They don't turn out fine, Nick Jonas. She goes off and like marries some guy and has a kid. Has kids who have kids. Who and have then kids. she can't go back to Neverland. Yeah, you're not allowed if you're over, what, I don't know, 12? Puberty? I don't know. It's pretty pretty young, really. I don't actually know. You lose it pretty early, apparently, according to Peter Pan. I'd be fascinated to find out. Peter is implied to be a lot of different ages. Like I mentioned, he's he's based on J.M. Barry's brother, who was 13 when he died, but he's often implied to be younger than that. He's said to like still have all his baby teeth, which is an, a, a weird, a, again, kind of a weird thing that it emphasizes as the reason women love him. <laughs> That's so fucking wild. This book is fucking strange. It's actually kind of weird if you read Peter and Wendy, how much the Peter Pan canon has sort of solidified every part of this story is so recognizable now from peter to tinkerbell to wendy to leverland itself captain hook the jolly roger like they're all these sort of cultural symbols at this point but really explicitly in canon none of it is really real and none of it is meant to be that constant it's not like You know, as I mentioned, Neverland is something that changes all the time, depending on who's there. The contents of Neverland are based on the mind of the child that's experiencing it. The the places they go and the things that are there, it's all just this sort of mishmash of a fantasy. John likes flamingos. This is another just sort of aside from the book. John likes flamingos, so his Neverland has lots of flamingos in it. Why not, John? Live your fucking truth. Live your flamingo darling. Wendy's got her fucking pet wolf, I guess. (laughs) Which is awesome. Literally never mentioned again. It's one time. The whole contents of Neverland in the book are always shifting and they, they just sort of pop up to prop up whatever's happening in the in the story at that moment. You've got like killer mermaids and weird weird birds with giant nests that you can use as boats. Basically whatever is convenient in the moment. And like again, canonically, Captain Hook dies and isn't there anymore, and Tinkerbell dies. And Wendy leaves and grows up, and and all the lost boys leave and grow up. And the only constant in that whole reality is Peter and the existence of Neverland as a place. I think it's interesting that that character and that place have become so solid, I guess. Yeah, culturally, they're they're very delineated. 
Yeah, it's not like the concept of Neverland has been solidified. It's like this specific one. And with these specific characters in it, this is always the cast. Like, these are the enduring beloved characters. But I think at the same time, people still kind of do project all of those things onto Neverland. It's supposed to be kind of a playground, and that's, that's the dream of it. Peter Pan is this sort of whimsical sprite who takes you off on adventures with this pirate or whatever. Whatever you want to do, wherever you want to go. I feel like the the spirit of that is why it has remained popular, but it, it's interesting that it's the cast. It's the specific cast. It's like the Disney cast of characters is what has remained. That makes a lot of sense. Disney's the primary source for most people, so the things that are in Disney are the most recognizable, and therefore a lot of the things that get propagated or even subverted are rooted in the Disney rather than in the books or the, even the stage plays. Disney, Disney is what most people are riffing on when they think of Peter Pan, even though Disney is also riffing on peter pan yep it's it's like an impression of an impression i think that also explains the popularity of some of the edgier peters (laughs) it's it's like suck it disney it's like he's cool now (laughs) he wasn't cool before but now he knifes people (laughs) this is a subtweet of once upon a time (laughs) is that the name of the episode did you just stagger (laughs) yeah did you just yeah, dagger on Because <laughs> I gotta say, listen, hey, everyone, it's okay if you like Once Upon a Time. I hate that show. I hate it. I There's things about it that I like, like Swan Queen is a cool idea. Everything yeah, else, I'm just there like, for burn it. it to the ground. <laughs> I have um, extremely, as I mentioned, extremely strong feelings about legitimate Captain Hook. Young ones with Young, sexy like, perfectly ones. done eyeliner who are like conventionally handsome. No, they can all they can all leave. They can all just go they cosplay go. somewhere else. Um, they also, hey, Pan 2015, they can't be blonde. I'm sorry, I don't make the rules. <laughs> Whatever the fuck they thought they were doing in that movie, <laughs> where he's just like a conventionally handsome blonde guy who's friends with this 10-year-old, <laughs> and they they promise to be friends forever. I, read the summary of this movie, and then <laughs> scream. As I did. <laughs> what they did hilariously in that movie is they made Blackbeard, quote unquote, basically Captain Hook. Yeah, I know. Because you need that fucking character. But they were like, what if Captain Hook just sort of wasn't, just wasn't Captain Hook? Cool idea. Get rid <laughs> of your shitty racist character. And then he goes and, and sings Smells Like Teen Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> what a cool idea you had. <laughs> Great job, anyway. that movie. Fucking universally panned movie. Ah, panned! Hey, well done. Nice. Universally panned, that's another good title. I like, Um, ooh, that might be it. Before you resume, I thought of another important Peter Pan moment in my life, and that was the first time I went to Disney World as a five-year-old. My mom spent a lot of money on that, like, dine with the character shit, and one of the characters was a (laughs) Oh, like, the picture of what the Captain Hook Disney people had to wear at those character breakfasts Uh because they're terrifying. And somewhere, somewhere in the ether is pictures of me having a fucking meltdown because I'm being forced (laughs) to stand next to like a six foot tall puppet looking (gasps) Captain Hook. And my mom was just like, great. I spent a lot of money on this and I traumatized my (laughs) child. Cool. Taking pictures of it. So this will be funny later. Have you ever watched any of the Tinkerbell movies? Uh, Yes, I've seen one of them. Or actually, I've seen three. (laughs) Of course Um, you have. I I watched two as as a as a young person. Well, it was high school. (laughs) I won't pretend. (laughs) 
Um, and then at some point I was having a a night in college and I watched the pirate fairy. They're actually pretty delightful. And I I enjoy that Tinkerbell has, has gone on to be a beloved character as well, especially because she like, again, she talks actually in, uh, most of the, the Tinkerbell movies. Well, all of them, I hope. So do all of her female friends, her little fairy friends. Yeah, I, I enjoyed those. My my super faves of, of all of the, the Peter Pans out there in the universe are definitely the original with all of its problems, but also all of its weird humor and fucked up shit. The 2003 adaptation, which remains influential on me, mostly because of Jason Isaacs. Because how horny you are for that Captain Hey, <laughs> that's true. Um, and also uh, Lost Boy by BOI by Sassafras Lowry, um, which is a like modern non-magic retelling of it that's it's interesting if you've read the original book because it's like chapter by chapter retelling while being extremely different that is about homeless queer youth and is a a devastating (laughs) i'll use that word primarily uh but extremely good and also very good on the pan hook side of things i remember you finding out that that book exists while you were already deep in a draft of pd and you were just like shit i'm gonna have to I want to read this now, but I can't. I can't. I know. I was like, I want to read this for inspiration, but also I absolutely can't do that. Yeah. So I just, after uh, after I finished Peter Darling, I just went on a spree because in the process of writing it, I found out how many fucking other adaptations of Peter Pan there were. So I just dove in headfirst after that and went whole hog on <laughs> Peter Pan mythos for a while. Uh, Lost Boy was definitely my favorite of those. I think I bought it for you. You did. Yes. It lives on my... My favorite shelf. Yes, I've seen now. it. It has a lovely cover as well. It's very, it's a very beautiful book. Those are my recommendations out of this. If my my book wrecks. So my recommendation is just watch the movie Hook. <laughs> <laughs> and then please tweet Amanda about it. She's so hungry. She needs it so much. I, I sometimes I just wake up and yell "Good morning, Neverland" like Smee does in that movie. That's how like deeply ingrained it is in it is in me. I should have done an entire episode on queer-coded Smee. Oh, Smee. There's a lot to that. Shmee. <laughs> next time. <laughs> next time. Next time we'll talk about the eternal gay Smee. The eternal gay Smee is the other title. Also, like with Disney's current sort of trajectory, I feel like he's the most likely character of the Peter Pan cast for them to admit. To be like, is, that is, one's gay. That one's gay. <laughs> Based on the live-action Beauty of the Beast, I think- God. We can safely say Smee is exactly Disney's type of canon queer rep right now. I just realized I could do an episode about all the various versions of Beauty and the Beast. Ooh, I love it. On that note, (laughs) do you have anything else you'd like to say about Peter Pan before we wrap? Because I've panned that that, that river river for diamonds. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, damn. One last thing. God, I'm just so full of fun facts about Peter Pan. His name, obviously, he's named after Peter, Llewellyn Davies, the real boy, mm-hmm. but he's also named after Pan, the, the mythological figure, yeah. and that's why he plays pipes. <laughs> Boom. I forgot about the pipe. Also, he rides a goat at one point. Oh my god. So, there you go. Meta frantically Googling Peter Pan riding a goat. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no. I'm looking for um, a fucking line from a... F- I'm going to, I'll close this, we'll do our wrap up and I'll close this out with a very meaningful quote from the movie Hook. Okay, I'm very excited. I can't wait to get to that. So I'll just say goodbye for now, everyone. Thank you for joining us. As always, if you'd like to continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter at RedPenPod or our personal Twitters. I am at Austin Chanted. I'm at Amanda H. Jean. 
And we also have a Patreon if you are so inclined and would like to toss us a few bucks. We've got plenty of fun uh, behind-the-scenes content and extra snippets. And also you can ask us to do some fun stuff for you, like talk about stuff that you like. Uh, really and we really, really this. appreciate it. <laughs> and it helps us keep the show going. Look, I just really want to know what you're going to say from the movie Hook. <laughs> okay. If you love something, cut it up. What are you going to say? <laughs> now you've really just... <laughs> it's not that good. Okay. Say it. This is from Tinkerbell. Sing for me. <laughs> Clap for me. You know that place between sleep and awake? <laughs> the place where you can still remember dreaming? That's, wh That's where I'll always, always love, love you. you. That's where I'll be waiting. <laughs> yep. Yep. Bye. <laughs>